This is Rod Allen. And this is Chalmeda. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Today, we welcome Marshall Gans. Thanks, Rod. Very excited to have Marshall with us. Marshall is my colleague at Harvard. He is a professor at the Kennedy School. And uh, I really wanted to have him on because of his background in organizing. Marshall is certainly the only member of the class of 64 to 92 at Harvard College because he started Harvard College in 1960 and uh, left to volunteer with the Mississippi Summer Project and then uh, became an organizer for the Student on Violent Coordinating Committee and went on to uh, unionize California farm workers uh, for many years. And then after all of that, returned to Harvard, finished his undergraduate degree, got a PhD and became a professor. So in theory, he's a professor based on the things he learned in school, but in practice, he's actually a professor based on the things that he learned in the real world. Most of the guests that we've had on have come from within the education world, uh, with which Marshall has a lot of familiarity, but he is not of it, I don't think, in the way that some of our other guests have been. And I would love to get some of his perspectives on uh, what what we're trying to do in education. So uh, welcome, Marshall. We're so glad to have you. Thanks, John. I, I was just struck. Uh, it's, I'm happy to be here. Uh, Zimmel wrote this essay uh, called The Stranger uh, about the experience of being in the community, but not of it. And uh, just as you were describing right now, it's a particular kind of inside-outside role that is typical of organizers. And I guess maybe that's why I've wound up in that role here. Exactly. Uh, my dad is a is an immigrant from India, and uh, he frequently says some some version of that that you know even after fifty or sixty years there's still some customs or ways that we do things that he can still see with outside eyes. And, you know, I think that's why immigrant novels are so powerful. And yeah, no, it's very interesting. Yeah. All right. So let's get into a little bit of the, the outsider part of the insider outsider. So you are by training and inclination and teaching a community organizer. And I think it would be fair to say that you see the world probably not exclusively, but often in terms of power and strategy and movements and counter movements. And so when you when you put that uh, lens or way of thinking on the educational sphere, like, you know, what 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 do you see? Like what what sorts of things seem let's start with the positive. Like what what sorts of things seem promising to you? Well, the most promising thing are the students and the freshness and the questions and the the desire to learn, you know, it's sort of a fresh generation. And for me, I find that incredibly generative. And it's a real privilege to be in a place where year after year, you're able to interact. I When I first started teaching, it felt like I get to go to class twice a week and have a conversation with the future. That's pretty cool. And, and, and for my own learning and for everyone's learning. So that is, for me, the number one thing about it. The context in which I'm teaching, it also is people who want to make a difference in the world. And so it's great to be able to work with those folks. Those are huge pluses. I, the third plus is in the context in which I'm teaching also, I have a, a lot of international students and the opportunity to learn across cultures 
not just across race and gender, but across cultures. And, and it's so rich because it creates this cross-contextual venue for learning. And to me, that's how you can get deep. As long as you stay in one context, it's limited because you can't distinguish context from what isn't. And when you cross context, you're able to go much deeper. And that's a third thing that I think is really, uh, uh, really rich about the opportunity I get. It's also the fact that you can't get away with just doing skills. Um, see, I think of what I'm teaching as practices. In other words, that there is a conceptual dimension there is a skill dimension, and there's also a values dimension, which is which is often only implicit, but I think ought to be explicit. And so, uh, you know, if you go out to do like training stuff in organizations out in the world, it's usually taught like purely skill. The value part's not lifted up in the conceptual part. Without the conceptual part, your capacity to uh, innovate and adapt is very limited because what you've learned is you go step one, two, three. And so the combination uh, I think is uh, is also extraordinarily uh, rich uh, opportunity because when you're out there running a campaign, you got to win the campaign, and the tension to have genuine critical learning, you know, critical reflection is often not there, and uh, you need that. Could you give us an ex- example of how you would uh, infuse values either into teaching or into a campaign? Well, I mean, in, in campaigns, it's kind of like, well, our some of our electoral campaigns these days, it's pretty hard to figure out what values, if any, are present. But certainly in social movement organizing and community organizing, values are core. I mean, why are we doing this? Why, why are we called to challenge the status quo? What is it in, where do we find the courage? Where do we find the hopefulness? Where do we find the solidarity? Those are values questions. Uh, and then there's the skills, but then there's also this sort of the strategic dimension. And sometimes that gets lost. Sometimes the other does too. It's, so for me, having this opportunity to, to sort of combine lived experience with the social science I was, I've been learning in a pedagogy is really cool. And that's probably the most, the biggest contribution I've been able to make back in the world of practice is a pedagogy that is grounded in the interaction of those three elements so that we take them seriously and 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 then build in sustained learning it just as part of the deal it's like uh, you know Carol Dweck uh, growth mindset it is something that's missing a lot out there people get into ways of doing and they just do so this context to be able to explore this stuff has been really really rich I mean, the other business has been, you know, working with people. I mean, organizing is about recruiting, identifying, developing leadership, building community around leadership and building power from the resources of the community. Well, this is the most amazing uh, leadership development opportunity recruiting that I've ever had. They come and then you find, and it's very different than having to go out there and dig them up. Let me ask you one other question and then I'll turn it to Rod. We had a chance to work together around the education leadership program at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And through that program, the theory at least was that they would learn some things about pedagogy and teaching and learning and that sort of thing from the the ed school folks, and that they would learn some management things from the business school folks, 
And then they would learn some things about politics from the, the Kennedy School folks. That was the idea in theory. And I know that, you know, that over the years that not necessarily specific to this program, but just our conversations sort of happened because of this program, you, you expressed some, you know, skepticism of some of the sort of theories of change that exists in the uh, education sphere. So again, without being, you know, there's no point in sort of going down too close on the program itself, but it, at the broader level, what's what sorts of things do you see, what sort of blind spots are there in the way that people in education tend to think about how things are gonna get better? Well, there's looking at a system and how it's working and say, okay, how do we make this work better, okay? And then how do I place myself in a position where I can have more influence in this system? But then there's looking at a system and saying, this system is really screwed up. And there are structural features that unless we change, you know, yeah, we can make it a little bit better, but there's some restructuring that's needed. That's thinking about it differently. Uh, because then the question is not how do I fit in, it's how do I engage the people whose interests are at stake and challenge the system with change that's needed. Uh, that's a different kind of proposition, because then I'm talking about not just how do, how do I empower myself, but how can I empower constituencies that I think need to be empowered for this thing to actually work the way it's supposed to work. And, and that's, that's a big difference. And I think it's much easier to default to the former than to take the risks involved in the latter. But we need the latter. And from my perspective, unfortunately, this model of entrepreneurial enterprise has sort of emerged as this is the way to innovation. Well, it certainly is in certain domains, like, you know, where profit is concerned. I don't think it's the model for improvement in education, in health, uh, in environment, which requires collective effort. It's not about the genius entrepreneur who goes off and makes this innovation. So you have an improvement in three schools. It's not, it's just, it's a wrong headed way to think about it because it's all part of a system where it needs to be. So I think that there needs to be a more critical, but critical constructive perspective not critical like, oh, this sucks, but critical like, why is this really happening? And how can we actually change the reasons why it's happening, not just try to fix some of the symptoms? And I, that's not just in education. It's across a lot of systems that we're, I mean, the, the, the one of the, uh, I don't know if I, the word is benefit of COVID was that it made so starkly clear all the dysfunction in our systems. And, and all the flaws and where all the, you know, the miners canaries, you know, where the most vulnerable. And so to me, that's a challenge. Can we learn from that and actually engage with some of the system change that we really need? And I don't know, I, 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 but I think we also in COVID, I'll say the other thing we learned is that we can be very much more adaptable and adaptive than we thought we were. Uh, so many things that were givens all of a sudden weren't there. And we didn't do so bad in the, you know, in the domain of adaptation, um, but it did reveal our system failures. And so to me, that's the number one question is how to address that. So Marshall, you're just, I think you're describing 
the way I'm thinking about what you're saying is you're you're talking about the difference between improvement and transformation, uh, an improvement agenda that is we can get more slightly better at the it, we we can do it harder, faster, more of it, and that's one one sort of movement and and that's kind of where education's been stuck I think for an awfully long time on that improvement agenda, as opposed to the transformation we we need to be doing something completely different. Yang Zhao talked, you know, he's, he flippantly says, uh, you, you can't fix a covered wagon to get to the moon. You, you have to build something completely different, right? It's not just about put better wooden wheels on. No, exactly. I, th- I think there's a spirit of that. But to engage it and make it real and have it not get ground down, that's where the real challenge is. So, 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 so I, I want to I uh, uh, probe at that a bit because, I, you know, in, in, in British Columbia, we, we wanted a transformation agenda, and we really wanted to get away from the improvement agenda and just keep plodding along. Although there are some things we need to improve at. So there's always two things going on, right? That split screen. There's always things you're improving while you're also trying to transform the, the system because you can't just put it on park for 20 years and rethink the whole thing and then uh, bring the dust cloth off it. But it seems to me that one of the things that we discovered fairly quickly in the literature, I think, supports this is that there's a different skill set we need from our educators when they're in, engaged in, a, in an improvement agenda to a transformative one. And, and, and the education system doesn't really know how to do transformation. Uh, it knows how to do improvement, uh, arguably or arguably not. That's, a, that's another podcast. And, and so in British Columbia, we embraced this, this uh, idea of movements and kept saying and believe that there's more to learn from Greenpeace and the eco movement about how to about how to transform education than there is from typical government agendas that are top down and um, you do these five things and on all will be well. What, what's been your experience with that, trying to move people who think in the improvement world over into the transformative kind of change world? And you earlier spoke of the importance of values, and, and, I, and I think that's probably such a, a key part of that, shifting people's thinking. That's a, a very, that's a really good way of formulating. I, and, and about the improvement transformation, I mean, just one thing to think about is how can you intentionally link the two? In other words, often there's urgency that demands attention now. But then what about this whole structural thing that we need to get at? Now, successful movements figure out how to combine them. In other words, you can take an immediate problem and solve it in a way that is that doesn't go very – it may solve that problem, but it doesn't use that problem as a way to go deeper. And, and see, I think of it more as shallow and deep rather than short-term, long-term. Because if you have a sense of where you're going – you're going to hear, uh, out of my experience, an, an example, the Montgomery bus boycott. You know, uh, originally the bus buses in Montgomery, Alabama, that uh, they wanted to integrate, uh, Rosa Parks and all that, uh, lawsuit, okay? I taught a class at the law school with Lonnie Guineer and Gerald Cotes on this, where we compared Brown v. Board of Education and uh, the Montgomery bus boycott. In Brown v. Board, the whole strategy was the law, okay? In the bus boycott, the strategy was a power strategy that included the law, but it also built a powerful community. It launched leadership that formed the SCLC. And so you're thinking in terms of multiple outcomes. So you have an urgent problem. Now, do you just go to that problem or do you think, 
how do we solve that problem in such a way that it builds the power or the capacity we need to go deeper? How is it that we develop leadership that can take this to the next level? Or do we just solve it? And I think, I think thinking about it that way, because the movements I was involved in, it was always combining both. You know, you had the urgent problem of what was going on at the courthouse or in the fields. But you also knew that unless you tried to solve it in ways that went deep enough to build the power to create the structural change we needed, you were just going to run in a circle. So that that's just kind of a way of, of maybe thinking about it. I think in terms of mind shift, I think the values is core. I think that why we care about what we care about, we, we all have these influences, but often we've lost touch with them, or we put them in very utilitarian terms because we're embarrassed to talk about it. Uh, and, you know, faith tradition, faith that falls into that category big time, where, oh, you're not supposed to talk about that. But those anchoring values really matter. And Charles Taylor, the moral philosopher, uh, Canadian, by the way, at, you know, Miguel, uh, yeah, no, it talks about the importance of learning to articulate moral sources. And he's not talking about philosophy. He's talking about the experiences that shape us, why we care, where we get our hope. How do, how do we develop trust? That's what we try to get at through this narrative work that we do, but it is about cultivating the salience and articulation and sharing of core values, which is a form of emotional communication, which we're also afraid of. And so, so the values work really matters because that's where the courage comes to take risks, to be open, to be vulnerable, to try things. So, you know, that's core. But then, you know, people, people, how can I say, people want to live their lives in different ways. There are people who are called to be pastors, and there's people who are called to be prophets, okay? And uh, they're both good things to do. They're just different. And I think we tend to do a lot more of the pastors and a lot fewer of the prophets to use a religious context. You know, in 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 Canada, and and I know increasingly in the U.S. as we as we consider and reconsider and um, and completely rethink relationships with Indigenous communities, you know, we're we're highly influenced here on Vancouver Island, uh, not as much as we should yet, but highly influenced by by thinking from our our, our Indigenous colleagues and uh, an Indigenous elder that Jal and I have had the privilege to to get to know talks about the you know the 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 hardest journey the longest journey is the 16 inches from between your head and your heart and and needing to learn to 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 lead uh, to start with the heart and 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 that, and that will guide the head uh, if you start with the head you you can sometimes get to some crazy places and you forget and you forget to bring those values and that that heart work forward and uh, i think it parallels what you're what you're saying we think of it as hard head hands in other words, really, it is like the why, it's the how, and then it's the skills needed to make the how real. And that kind of, three, you know, you can almost think, I guess, affective, cognitive, and behavioral, if you want to think about it in those terms. Then it challenges you to construct a pedagogy of head, hands, heart, and a pedagogy that doesn't just rest on head, which a lot of them do, or some on skills, there's not much going with heart. <laughs> and for me, that's where creativity comes from. You know, it's not a calculus, it's an imaginative enterprise, creativity. 
it's not cost benefit analysis and, and there is a place for there's a place for how but unless we're over here thinking about the things we don't know how the things we have to figure out how then we just get stuck and and the stuckness is really the antithesis of what the educational project really is isn't it i mean we're supposed to learn all our lives we're creatures we're made for that and and we we don't scaffold that the way we could i think that connects back to the question that rod asked before about the the mindset question i mean i think one of the things that's tough for folks who want more transformation in education is you know everybody's been to school and so they think that it should be for their kids the way that it was for them or at least part of them thinks that and i think what you're you're saying is through conversation and asking people about the why and asking people about their their deep hopes for their children so yes they want their children to go to college and get a job and so forth but they also have you know deeper hopes for their children they want their children to be able to think and navigate and lead and so on and so forth and once you start to have those conversations it really opens up possibilities for community-led transformation efforts that's really cool that's a very cool way to think about it yeah because then you're 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 cultivating a creative constituency and creating the conditions in which it isn't just the same old same old same old now some things need to be same old same old you know and it's making the distinction because sometimes you know i know we throw out the baby with the bathwater you know and 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 then you wind up so it's it, it's always balance you know in in the jewish tradition there's there's two uh, forces that are talked about in in the Kabbalah tradition. One is called Chesed, which is loving kindness. The other is called Gevura, which is judgment or boundary. How you combine, how how you hold those into tension with each other in the theology is how you achieve justice. And we tend to go to either pole. And the reality is holding those tensions. It's not moderation. It's holding the tensions. So when we teach uh, the stuff I teach, we talk, teach it as craft. No, this is a craft. You know, yes, it's heart motivated, but there's craft here that you have to master in order to be able to turn that strategic imagination into reality. And uh, yeah. I really agree with that. Uh, when Sarah and I landed on mastery, identity, creativity, that was also about sort of holding those tensions. And I think what you said about your teaching being a practice, I think a, if you're trying to cultivate a practice, it sort of forces you into holding some of those tensions because if you don't build the skills, if you just sort of ignited the passion and you didn't build the skills or you once over the skills, but you didn't uh, do them again and again with feedback and practice, then you would see pretty clearly when people tried to do whatever the thing was, it would fall flat. So it it sort of forces you into that disciplined kind of yin and yang. Yeah, and it's, you know, I was reading uh, Alistair McIntyre, I hadn't read for a long time, but I really like, uh, talks about the Greek understanding of virtue was practice. It wasn't just like having right thought, it is what you actually do. And so to have schools, uh, professional schools, that don't teach practice. It's crazy. I mean, uh, I'm speaking about the Kennedy School, maybe the X School is better on this, but Kennedy School, 
where where it's it's you're theorizing about a lot of things. You're learning the practice of research. You're learning the practice of PowerPoint. But are you learning the practice of actually engaging people in difficult deliberative challenges and figuring out how to make things work? And I guess it goes back to Dewey. About, uh, I'm now at the Center of Public Leadership, and we're just sort of codifying a project we're calling the Practicing Democracy Project, thinking of democracy as a practice. You know, and, and I, it's Dewey in a way. I mean, and it's, but if you think of it that way, it's not just a structure, it's not just a set of ideas, it is a way of doing things. And I think we've really lost that. And we need to, I don't know that we ever had it fully. Obviously, we, obviously are, we've never had a representative democracy in this country and it's just getting less, to, less uh, representative. But the whole notion of practice, that's what living life is about. And uh, I don't know, we decouple these things to great loss. How would you describe your longtime practitioner? Sort of how, how would you describe your practice? I think that it it centers on head, hands, heart to begin with. It's rooted in, I hopefully, it's rooted in a belief in the infinite worth of each person, uh, individually and collectively. In other words, that you know, every faith tradition around says something, some equivalent of this. But I was blessed in getting connected in the civil rights movement. Really, was a very important experience for me because it coupled human development. In other words, people who had been frightened, finding courage, uh, people who had been uh, driven into apathy, finding motivation, people distrusting, finding solidarity. That level of development, of human development, was at the heart of it. So when I say organizing, about develop, identifying, recruiting, developing leadership, that's what I'm talking about is developing people's capacity for agency, for acting as agents with access to the power they need to act. But what was exciting about it was it coupled with organization, which then took it to a collective level, and institution. And so instead of it just being all micro or all macro, it was a way to link the three. And so that's been, I think, what I've been trying to do over the years, is find ways to do that to anchor in, in people, anchor in the development of people's capacity to lead, to learn, to practice, uh, and linking that then to collective effort, organized effort, and linking that to institutional change and, and, and how they interact with each other. Rod, how would you, how, how would you describe your practice? Less, uh, less clearly articulated uh, than M Marshall has described it. Um, but, but, but so I, I love, I love those descriptions. I, I would have said, and, and, you know, the, the how is as important as the what, uh, how you are as a teacher, how you are, how you present as a human being is, is as important as the, the knowledge that you hold or the pedagogy that, that you use. And to me, a large part of it is, and, and Marshall, you, you talked about this just at the end, is, is the word agency. How we think about agency to me is something that in the public system, in the sort of in the K to 12 world that I know best, we have done a crummy job at agency throughout the system, whether it's agency for teachers or agency for students or agency for parents. Uh, 
uh, agency for various groups in our in our in our schools. It's hard to, I'm going to say, teach a transformative curriculum when our system hasn't caught up yet, and we don't and we don't have agency for our students, and we don't have agency for our, for our teachers and community. Because as as you said, it's about how you what what you believe about each and every child that that you work with, uh, an individual that you come across is so pivotal to that. So, so I would agree absolutely that it's, it's how those things get, get blended and, and how you give teachers agency to do the things that they need to do, act in the ways that they need to act, to show up as a full living human being, not just a academic person that shows up at eight o'clock and leaves at three o'clock, that they actually are a, a human. Uh, you have a groups of humans working together and learning together gets that, and that, that collective agency. Amen to that. And, because it's individual and collective agency. It's not like an either or, which is where it often gets misconstrued. Oh, it's collective or no, it's both and. You can only have it when it's both. You can't have true agency at either unless it's both. And no, exactly. No, well, we're singing off the same uh, hymn book here. I have a story about this. There was a student that I had in the fall uh, a few years ago. You know, she did okay in my class and. I don't know. She got a, a B plus on something and came into my office and asked like how she could have gotten an A minus and blah and blah, like really the least uh, enjoyable conversations one has as a teacher or a professor. And then in the spring, she came back and she said, you know, I'm organizing a thing around diversity at the ed school. We think that the curriculum is not representative. Uh, enough. We think the faculty isn't diverse enough. This is maybe seven years ago. So it was sort of before all of this had taken off. And uh, she said, you know, we're going to, we're going to give a presentation. We put together a survey and we're going to present our findings to the Dean at Asquith, which is our biggest lecture hall. Like, you know, can you be there in the audience just because it would be good to have some faculty presence and so on. And I thought like, what, what happened to you? Like three months ago, you were this sort of student looking for a better grade. And now you're, and sure enough, like the, the they did present the findings. The dean, who at the time was a, a white woman who I think was thinking through her own thinking around race and power and things like that, looked very sort of on the spot and, you know, like, what am I going to do now kind of thing. And I thought, wow, like what has happened to this person? They've been transformed. And uh, what had happened was she she took your class. So uh, oh, I uh, love those stories, though. So uh, <laughs> I wonder, I'm trying to think who that would have been. I don't I don't know. I don't think we should we should say who it is because the first part of the story isn't that flattering. But the the, <laughs> the, se the second part is where she ended up, which is the important part. And uh, it was really remarkable, remarkable effort. So yeah, I, I do think that's the most powerful form of teaching. Like I think as teachers and the best teaching, eventually like the person reaches a level of knowledge and skill and agency and personhood that they don't need you anymore because they can do all that you could do and more. And uh, I've, I've seen that in your, in your teaching. No, that's, that's, what's really exciting about it is, is, I guess I guess one of the things that attracted me to the civil rights movement was the the first meeting I ever went to of student nonviolent coordinating committee was in a sanctuary of Gamut Theological Seminary in Atlanta. And I thought, oh boy, they're gonna all have their their 
maps and charts and all this stuff. And I go in and they're having a preach-off. What's a preach-off? Preach-off was who could imitate Dr. King better. (laughs) (laughs) The combination of, of joy, of celebration, and making a difference, you know? Uh, and it, so it's for me, it was like, how do you find locations in which you can live your values? You can work with people you admire and, 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 and create joy with, and at the same time, see it work. And in civil rights, we saw it work. And the same with the farm workers. And we get to do that in teaching too. And to me, that's what's so generative about the opportunity to, to see that, you know, and because it's a short-term evidence of long-term possibility. And, and I just think that's, uh, I, think, I think it's a privilege we get to do this. So Marshall, you, you talked earlier, you mentioned COVID and, and the challenge that, that, that uh, pandem- global pandemic is, is creating for everyone. And it, it does act as a, both a window and a mirror, and we, can see, we see ourselves differently, and, and, and it exposes in very stark light the inequities that we have and so on. And how do we take that experience that we're all collectively living, uh, although it's impacting us in different ways, for sure, coming from a place of privilege, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm grumpy that, you know, I, I, I have to work from home, but I still have a job, right? Like, you know, like, um, how, how do we take that and, and turn it into the opportunity that, that you're describing and, and as, as a catalyst for something bigger and deeper and not just, uh, well, let's get the kids a, a slightly better app to work from or whatever it is, but to really generate significant transformative change and keep that, I think, as you're describing, sort of the not joyful, but optimistic perspective. You know, hopeful. I, I like the word hope because uh, the definition I use is from Maimonides, uh, uh, where hope is belief in the plausibility of the possible as opposed to the necessity of the probable. In other words, it is always probable Goliath will win, but sometimes David does. Uh, and that sense, of, it's the space between fantasy and certainty. And, and that place, that may not be optimistic, but it is hopeful. And, and arguably, to be a realist is to recognize possibility as well as probability. We tend to get trapped by probability and say, oh, no, it won't work. It's not feasible. How could we do that? When we should be asking, could that be? What if we tried it? So, you know, I, uh, I think that cultivating that um, that sensibility. But yeah, I mean, you'd like to think that politics is one place where we should be doing this. You'd also like uh, movements are places. It's like, what are the venues? You know, uh, faith communities have been venues for a lot of change in our countries going way back. I don't know, it's different in recent history, but I'm thinking of Tommy Douglas and the CCF out there in Saskatchewan or, you know, the, the role of uh, faith-based community, because there is this question of commitment and motivation. Uh, I do some work with Sunrise now, uh, which I love doing work with the young people in Sunrise. They're full of that energy and the courage. And yeah, I have a lot to learn, a lot to figure out. But what are the venues? You'd like to think that universities, colleges could be such venues, that uh, politics could be. But movements, um, that's what movements are about. How you create enough enough uh, uh, scaffolding so as to enable 
mutual learning, focus, and decision-making is a real problem and it's a real challenge. And uh, that's one reason I'm doing stuff with Sunrise is to try to help in that area. That's what it takes. And that takes some people who are committed enough to say, you know, by God, this is what we're going to make happen and reach out to other people. And there must be those folks are around. You know, what's what's so frustrating is um, people think they can't do anything without a grant. Joel. No, just kidding. Hey, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Not the grants are bad. Not the grants are bad. But yes, yeah. But I, it's in, in in the world of community organizing and social movements, it's a different world than it was fifty years ago when it came to uh, the role of philanthropy, which arguably is very problematic. And when we look at questions of democracy, uh, just giving by uh, Rob Reich is a very good reflection on that. And then, you know, our electoral system is is so problematic. But there's a very good book by Dan Schlossman called When Movements Anchor Parties. And it's a it's a history of the relationship of movements to parties and politics in the U.S. And he argues that change rarely initiated from within the electoral apparatus, but it's generated by movements who exercise influence on that apparatus. I think that's true. And, and I think that that's... That's that's the area that I'm trying to find ways to work in. I think that's true. Also, I I remember at once one point for teaching Mark Moore and I put together a list of forces that can create change in the world, and you know, policy, law, culture, science, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Social movements is the I think is the sort of strongest element on that list because it has the potential to reshape all the others. So yeah, I, I think that I think that is right. So speaking of which, in education, like so if we're talking about public K to 12 education, which arguably has two big problems. It's unequal and it's grounded in an industrial model created a hundred years ago that doesn't stimulate people's interests and you know, passions and inclinations and all that head, hand, heart stuff you do. You don't see too much of that in either K to 12 classes or college classes for that matter. So we've got two problems, the inequality problem and the transformation problem. What, what sort of movements could dislodge one or both of those or make progress or however you want to put it uh, on one or both of those problems? Well, see, that's a question I would ask you too. I mean, both of you. I mean, because I don't think it's, I mean, a problem we have in the U.S., which I think is distinct from Canada, is the radical decentralization of our educational system, K-12. Now, to me, that is a fundamental problem, because how do you, I mean, you know, the difference between going to school in, t- in some place in Texas and going to school in the Bay Area, it's like, it's two different worlds. And, you know, people complain about social media and, and all this stuff. Let's go to the basics of what kind of learning we give our children across this country. And it's just crazy. And, and, and it's irresponsible. And, and now you sort of say, well, we got to get rid of decentralization. Well, we don't have to be like France, you know, and be, but there, there's, Nobody seems to have any notion of tackling that. I, I guess it comes along from time to time. I guess Common Core was, I guess, an effort to do something about that. 
But to me, there's a fundamental structural problem there. Now, what it does mean is that unless you unless you build a movement that crosses all those jurisdictions, how, how do you generate enough change? How do you generate enough change that there's a demand for federal standards as opposed to something that's being imposed on us? So to me, that's one really, really kind of key question. And uh, and I don't, you know, I, I don't know. It's a political question. It's it's a lot of different things. Joel, can I can I flip that back to you? Uh, can I can we ask you your own question? What, what's your take? Well, first to sort of respond to some of the things that Marshall said. I mean, I think it's it's certainly true that the U.S. has a highly decentralized system. I think that does present an opportunity for organizers. We saw this with the Christian right in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. There was sort of a clear sense that school boards were the, you know, part of this system that was vulnerable. And there are, you know, literally like 10,000 school boards in the United States. And the people who run for them are people who live in those local communities. And the number of people who vote in a school board election is usually less than 10%. So uh, that being the case, it's really not that difficult to win a school board election with any amount of organizing and effort because you only need, you know, if 10% of the people vote, you need 6% of the people in the community to vote for you. So I don't know, David and I wrote a paper, David Cohen and I wrote a paper called When Reform Sometimes Succeeds. And we looked at, you know, things that had changed in the U.S. school system over time and tried to identify some commonalities. And one of the big commonalities was there was widespread political, social, economic demand for those changes. And so as a result, while in theory, the system's very decentralized, in practice, a lot of reforms happen fairly quickly across lots of places, because once a certain kind of demand emerges, schools are kind of open, permeable systems. And so once people start asking for certain things, then those things start to come to being in a lot of places. So I I actually think that it is, you know, if, if we were in Singapore, it, the good news would be if the Ministry of Education liked your idea, every kid in Singapore would get it. The bad news would be if the minister of Singapore didn't like your idea, no kid in Singapore would get it. So the fact that we have this big decentralized system, I think does create, I think it it actually uh, strengthens the role of social movements because I think it's one of the few levers that can actually penetrate across that whole system. If lots and lots of people get excited about something. And I think we've seen some of that in the most the most recent version. We've seen some of that with Black Lives Matter, that the word equity is now on the tongue of every school board, uh, at least in the blue states and some of the red states. But the way it has become in a lot of places sort of more performative and inside baseball language than actually making a full-throated case for why things should change and why that would be good for all students, then you get into trouble. But you can sort of see the the potential of uh, movements for change. No, it's, it's interesting. Of course, now we have uh, critical race theory. And now we have uh, what happened in Virginia. I mean, they are targeting uh, school boards now big time. And, and I remember, no, when I was growing up, the, the John Birch Society was targeting school boards. 
But now, I guess, where's the forces of democracy challenging, you know, school boards? Now, teachers unions paid a lot of attention to school boards for quite a while. And teachers unions ought to be part of the solution, not, not the problem. But that's a whole other dimension to our system that's really messed up because uh, teachers themselves need to need to take leadership in this thing, I think. So, and it's, it's, it's distorted, you know, we got to have charter schools, we got to do this, got to do that. It's, it's the entrepreneurial model gone wild and treating education as a market, just like treating health as a market, doesn't work. It doesn't work. It, it undermines the core values. And so, no, I, I hear what you're saying. There certainly are those opportunities, but then you have to really be organized to turn those opportunities into something real. Not to mention because of the radically unequal resources, right? There's no way to solve that except through centralized campaigns at the state or federal level that you can't equalize the tax bases within the resources of unequal tax bases. Well, it's interesting to think about how to link that to educational transformation, to this appetite for it. And, you know, how you create a common interest in the, you know, the well-resourced suburbs or whatever who care about education and all the communities that don't have the resources, that it's not a competition, that it's one. See, and that's where the entrepreneurial stuff takes us down that road of competition. And how do you, how do you, you know, you did organizing for Obama, who is trying to put together a sort of more affluent liberals with, you know, folks who might more directly benefit from some of his policies. How do you build that kind of narrative? Well, by building it. I mean, it's really, I think Obama could have done a whole lot more, a whole lot more, including, and maybe even especially in education, uh, that, that there was opportunity to do. So then Betsy DeVos comes in and she's, she's not shy, you know, she's not holding back. You know, she's out there doing her thing and, and it's disastrous. And so then now we're trying to recover. But there, there's some some kind of, I don't know, uh, inhibition or something. But it is a question. I think it is a question of movement building. Now, who are the movement builders? What, what you were describing about about parents getting excited about the possibilities for their kids, not just the getting by. That's cool. That's great energy. You know, so that there's some some bringing together or co- coalition, not really coalition, some co- coalescing around a vision of what what education can be for us, rather than how do we get the minimum? How do we protect ourselves? How do we? I don't know. It's it's a real uh, we have a real political culture problem. Yeah, and also uh, students, particularly high school students. I don't know. I mean, they're the ones who are kind of conscripted into institutions and they're the ones who are suffering if they're in a sort of factory model drill and kill all day. And so it seems like there should be some way to awaken that and say, I mean, I feel like I heard you said to me once, the problem with you folks in education is, you know, change is about urgency plus hope and you have plenty of urgency, but not enough hope. I don't know if you remember saying that, but I, I think students like they've got the urgency. They can see the problems. I'm not sure they're aware that there are other things that could be in their place that could be better. 
you know, it's it's really because March for Our Lives was really cool. And uh, March for Our Lives was that kind of energy. Uh, sunrise is that kind of energy. It's out there. It's it sort of where does it go and how does it get organized and how does it add up to? I mean, I know the folks. We did some training with March for Our Lives in Parkland, and and I know those folks. In fact, David Hogg is a you know sophomore here at the college now. But they get celebritized, and then they get NGO'd, and then you know the combination of getting celebritized and NGO'd. You know what? What are you anymore? You know, by NGO'd, I mean it's like, oh, you can't be partisan. You can't be this. You can't be that. And you know, you need to be have a five hundred one c three. And I don't want to digress, but it's just there's a lot of energy there. We need to figure out how to scaffold it better. I think. Uh, let me ask one other one other question. We both taught at Harvard, which means that we've had a lot of uh, interaction with the movements around Black Lives Matter and for equity and social justice. And I just wonder what you make of that. Like, has it been constructive, not constructive, partially constructive? What, what's, what's been your experience? Well, I think, I think it's constructive in the sense that that the only change we seem to get is when it's generated by people who really need to change. I mean, and then you have a constituency that is pushing uh, and often opening things for all of us. I mean, expanding. But, you know, we also have a setting in which there's a lot of pretty, pretty awful resistance that takes in very different forms. We also have a, I don't know quite how to put it, how to engage in turning the difference into an asset rather than a barrier. I, I tend to think that when, when people who really need change and they don't see a, a plausible pathway through power, will use whatever means they can to try to assert some kind of power. I think the calling out culture goes a lot with that. You know, it's kind of like, I think, I think it's the opposite of being hopeful. I think it's being angry without hope. And, and angry without hope is pretty destructive. Uh, anger with hope can be powerfully constructive. But the hope factor is, a, it, I think it's a big concern. It's one thing to act out of desperation. It's another thing to imagine, oh, it could be better. And then people say, oh, you're pretty naive. You know, what do you mean it could be better? This is just how it is. That's devastating. And there's a lot of that around. And that different could be better. Not just more of the same could be better. It's better if we go backwards as opposed to it could be better if we go forward. Yeah, yes, exactly. Oh, yeah, well, the, the you know, the romantic perfect past, you know, which never existed. That's, no, I, it, again, it, I don't know. It comes down to imagination, hopefulness, um, experimentation. I mean, these are easy words. How to create the venues that really encourage them, I think, is what, is a real challenge we have. And it's, it's true with healthcare too. I mean, it, it's true in a lot of the human humanities, human value domains, because of what, when everything gets monetized, well then that's the value that counts. And uh, that's, that's what we have to deal with. 
one one of the things that we that we that we attempt to do in BC when we were heading beginning down this road is meeting with all our various partner groups. So government was there, um, the world of business, kids were there, parents were there, unions were there, etc., and try to identify all the things that we agreed on around around learning around the kind of future that we collectively wanted, and sort of this this agreement that. If we agree on, say, 85% of the things, we're going to spend 85% of our time talking about that and only 15% talking about the stuff we disagree on. It's important to talk about what we disagree on. No, no argument, but it, it skews the story. It skews the narrative down, down the, the crazy road uh, as opposed to, no, actually, we agree with most of what's, what's been said here or, the, or this general direction and, and trying to give parents who are often the most who are often confused about whose advice to follow, what is the right thing is, you know, um, some comfort that actually everybody's kind of in, in agreement on these big, big issues. Um, and we'll play around, we'll continue to push and shove a bit around the edges, but, but let's get moving. Let, let's create that movement and let's, and let's start, start um, moving the agenda down. Who, who facilitated those? How was that venue created? <laughs> Hundreds of conversations across the province. I, I hit the road and 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 facilitated many of those conversations. We had a number of uh, joined up conversations. You know, we strategically tried not to talk to any one group alone. We always, whenever possible, wanted a collection of folks in the room so that they could hear themselves agree. And and you would see them looking across the room, business going. I know that the union is going to disagree with us. And then they see heads nodding and they go, oh, we actually, actually, we, we agree. And these moments, it was almost shock that would ripple through these rooms as people are hearing themselves agreeing with each other. Well, that's what we want too. Oh, says business and the unions with their, you know, and, and, and parents and kids and it's and an indigenous community. It's like, wow, that's powerful stuff. People had to hear themselves say it. They didn't want to be told it. They had to experience it. And so it was just... And, and we brought in validators and, and people to come and be provocative and push and shove and, and help us help us with those conversations. Were those conversations then connected to the resources to act on what they came up with? Because that's the other problem. That, that was all to inform government and help inform the collective strategy to support government in bringing in a radically different type of curriculum, uh, different types of assessments, d different practices in, in classrooms and in schools to, to enable those without requiring them because you can't make people do things, but you can enable and support them in that effort to do that in a joined up collective kind of unified way. Because it's, as you know, you've been saying all along, it's really hard work. Yeah. But uh it sounds like you uh, you were doing some organizing up there, and well, yeah. no, I mean, really, it sounds like an organizing campaign. Yeah, it, it was very much Greenpeace and environmentalism as opposed to a government directive where the government will say, "Hey, everyone, we got a new curriculum. Hope you like it." The other thing that you hit on that I think is also when we do team launches, we have a little exercise where everybody writes a sentence about what they you know our goal and who and what. And uh, we have everybody read their sentence, and then the facilitator finds the common elements. And, and so it's an exercise, maybe two or three times, and you come up with points of convergence. And it works because usually when you sit down to have that kind of conversation, 
somebody will say, well, I think it's about whales. And somebody else will say, no, it's about trees. And you get into the difference as opposed without creating a commonality context. And that's what I what you're describing to me is you do the work to actually create a, a commonality context in which you can then get into the tough things. It's not like we're solely defining each other by those differences. And talking about those those differences from a, a connected up place rather than a disparate place. Yeah. Right. Boy, we have a lot of that work to do here. Yeah. I also think that that point is fractal across the education system being the one that I, I know the best that, you know, if you're a teacher and you're about to launch a class and you say, you know, today we're going to, you know, look at X, like essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to take some version of people's individual purposes, like why they're sitting there and bring that together into some sort of collective purpose. Like this is why we should be doing this uh, together. And then conversely, you know, and then if you're the math department chair and you want to move from more procedural to more conceptual math, same thing, like the math teachers are in the room and you got to be like, this is why I think we should move from here to there. And you got to, you know, gauge your colleagues and see where they're coming from and try to develop some common collective perspective. And so I think this sort of forging common purpose out of individual purposes is really just a central leadership task that happens over and over again at different sized units throughout the throughout the system. Yeah. And 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 played across a canvas of who decides. Right? Like 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 sort of some fundamental beliefs about who has the right to decide. Who who decides? Amen to that. Cuz what what can throw these things off is when the power inequality makes it a sham. And so, yeah, everybody's at the table, but hey, over here, they got the horsepower. Yeah. All right, Rod, should you move us to the lightning round? I think so. We, we, we've, we've been uh, engaged, Marshall, in some deep conversation and some big thoughts. The time for that is passed. Oh, oh. Um, <laughs> Ooh, that's good. We're, we're going to move on if you'll, uh, if, if you'll indulge us to what we lovingly call the lightning round. A chance for some sort of short, short form kinds of answers to, to some short snapper questions. Uh, and feel free to ask Joel his, his response to any of those questions too. Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> and, and so if I may, Marshall, I'll begin. Um, Please, yes. What's one thing that lots of people in education think is right that you think is wrong? Uh, entrepreneurial solutions to what are our social problems. Nice. Joel. You'll recognize this prompt. I used to think blank, and now I think blank. Whoa. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, that's really an interesting... That's, that's a serious reflection. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. I used to think that the Academy was the place you would least want to be. And now I see that it can be a great place from which to do what you want to do. That's great. I love that. Uh, I used to think uh, that um, when I was a very beginning teacher, that, that it was all about figuring out what I was supposed to do and sort of following the rules. By about uh, Thanksgiving of that first year, I, I realized 
it's got nothing to do with any of that. And it's about knowing my students, full stop, understand them as humans. Joel, how about you on that one? I used to think that whole systems were places to look for inspiration. And now I think that practices are probably a better bet. Marshall, what's one thing you wish policymakers understood that they don't understand? Policymakers. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you can't just vote them off the boat. Yeah. No, no, it's just that it's that fundamentally it's all really about people and how they are able to live their lives. People are not data points. They're not utility functions. They're human beings. They're full human beings. And you got to get that. Got to get that. It's amazing you still have a job at Harvard talking like that. <laughs> Another field or domain uh, that is worth emulating. Another domain that's worth emulating. So in other words, if we were, you know, as educators, like where should we look for inspiration outside uh, education? And I think I might outlaw social movement organizers as the, two, as the most obvious answer. Uh, is there something else? It's funny uh, because what, 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 what came to mind was really uh, cultural uh, creation, was the arts, actually. There's something about meaning and imagination and, and less of a preoccupation with how and more of a preoccupation with why. Obviously, it takes, it takes both. But yeah, I think that could be a richer, just a different way to think about it. We're going to end on the on the hardest question of all. So, so we're really, we're really coming to the pointy end of the pencil here. Marshall, what's your favorite holiday meal or treat to eat? <laughs> oh boy, you know it's funny. Uh, I have to say sushi. Uh, for five years, I was doing a lot of work in Japan, and it was fascinating to me. I just I I found the culture so interesting. And sort of the, the sense of craft about everything. Uh, and so then I sort of got really kind of engaged with Japanese food. It's funny. Uh, yeah, I, I should have said turkey or potato pancakes or something. No, but actually, that's what came to mind. Maybe it's a phase. Maybe I'll pass out of it. But it's pretty healthy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How about you, Joel? Well, th this is not a very specific answer, but uh, my my mother is going to be here over the holidays, and uh, she's a very good cook. She um, lived in India with my dad for a few years in their 20s, uh, which I think were hard times for them financially, but in retrospect, were great for me because uh, my mom learned how to do Indian cooking while there and uh, brought brought that back with her. So we'll, we'll get some sort of Indian meal when she's here over Christmas. And uh, that is much better than anything that we can make in our household. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, 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 10 points for safe answer, Joel. Um. <laughs> <laughs> good politics, good politics. Yeah, yeah, you're building a movement, my friend. Um. <laughs> All right, Rod, what, what, uh, what, what do you got? 
Oh man, if you could, if I stood up and you could see my waistline, you know it's everything right now. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna go with butter. T- uh, no, I'm gonna go with shortbread. Shortbread. That's okay. that's it. Uh, I could just I could just grab a plate full of it and just rub it all over my face. I don't even need to eat it. I, I just. Uh, I, and I apologize for the image, everyone, but I just uh, I just love it. Oh, great. It's good. Marshall, thank you so much for for this uh, outstanding conversation. I've learned so much, uh, and it's been uh, one of my goals is to have a conversation with you. You've been on my on my love to have a beer with list for for a long time. So this is uh, this has been uh, such a, such a pleasure to get to know you and uh, um, and and listen to uh, listen to your ideas and thoughts on so many of these joined up kinds of topics. So thank you. We shouldn't preclude the beer at some point. Uh, <laughs> but no, thank you, thank you, Rod and Joel. Really, this it's a real pleasure. It's just, yeah, it's great to get an opportunity to explore this stuff with people who care. You know, it's uh, yeah. Thank you for us too. This is Rod Allen, and this is John Mina, and this has been Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Today, we were joined by Marshall Gans. Don't forget that we were produced by Gino Beniamino. They are, as always, holding down the fort. Thank you, Gino. Thank you, Gino. He is so seamless that it's sometimes like he's not even there, but Gino is always there. And and so, Gino, thank you so much for your your work on these pods, making us sound good. I was going to say look good, but even you don't have that kind of magic, but but making us uh, sound good, that's, that's awesome. Thanks, everyone. Cheers.